Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 222. And today on the podcast, we're covering just about everything you need to know to hunt public land whitetails. And helping us do that are eight of the best public land deer hunters from across the country. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today on the show, we're doing something a little bit different. So today, I want to cover a wide swath of topics related to public land deer hunting. And I'm sure this isn't news to most of you, but as hunting access on private land becomes harder and harder to come by, more hunters are turning to public land options. And because of that, the interest and demand for that kind of content keeps rising too. So because of that, over the last four years or so of the podcast, we've had a whole slew of different public land experts on the show to share their perspectives and strategies for these kinds of scenarios. But those conversations, they're scattered across dozens of episodes from way back in the archives. And that kind of makes it hard to, to find and utilize that stuff, especially if you're new to the podcast or to deer hunt. So I got to thinking about this a little while back because I'm in the midst of planning a couple public land whitetail hunts myself for this season. One is in Montana and the other in Minnesota. And I was actually wanting to go back and review some of the ideas that have been shared in past episodes, but I quickly realized that is easier said than done. So I decided to do something about it, and that is what we've got here today. I've gone through all of our podcast archives to find the best public land hunting tactics and advice, and then pulled out the best segments of those conversations for us to review together here today in this one single episode. So I think that if you're an avid public land deer hunter, this should be a great review. And if you're just getting started, this is going to be the perfect launching point. So here in a minute, we're going to hear from folks like Tony Peterson, Bernie Berenger, John Eberhardt, Tyler Reidenauer, Andy May, Aaron Warburton, Eddie Claypool, Todd Mead, and more. And then along the way, I will also be chiming in with a few thoughts of my own too. So, like I said, this is a new idea. I don't know if this kind of review podcast is going to work or not. So, you guys are just going to have to let me know. I'll, I'll be curious to hear your feedback. I do think that hearing from all these different people on all sorts of public land deer hunting topics all in one place, back to back to back, I do think it's going to be something that really helps drive home certain lessons or ideas. So I'm really hopeful this can be helpful to a lot of you, but we will see. 
So with that said, before we get to it, let's take a very quick break to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties for their continued support of the Wired to Hunt podcast. And today, producer Spencer Newharth is chatting with land specialist Neil Hogger about the dream that many of us public land hunters have, which is someday maybe actually owning a little piece of dirt on our own. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Neil Hogger, a land specialist out of Wisconsin. And Neil is going to be talking to us about what buyers should look for when they want to put food plots on a property that doesn't currently have any. Well, I always like to try to add food plots in areas that are kind of a natural line of travel. So let me speak to my own experience in my own place. Um, I'm in big woods and there are no food plots and there are, are no agricultural fields for miles. So my limitations were that I only have so many places I can put them. That was the first limitation of where can I put them? Where is it flat enough? Where is it dry enough? Um, but what I try to do on my own place is I try to design with line of travel for the animals in mind and also approach. So my own line of travel and uh, for my point of it, my side of it, I try to approach my food plots in a perpendicular manner, meaning kind of have a 90 degree angle so that I have, I minimize the opportunity to cross paths with the animals as they're moving on their natural travel lines, if that makes uh, sense. So, uh, cover bedding cover to food to maybe more bedding cover and i put my food in the middle and then i try to approach it at a 90 degree angle so there's one point of contact on that line if that makes sense if you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that neil currently has listed for sale visit whitetailproperties.com backslash hogger that's h-a-u-g-e-r Okay, so when it comes to chasing whitetails on public land, I think the very first thing we need to talk about is the mental side of things. That being, you know, our expectations and our goals and our mindset. Because if you don't have that kind of stuff figured out right out the gate, all the tactics and secret spots in the world, they're not going to do you any good at all. You see, the, the reality of public land deer hunting, in most cases, it's very different than the deer hunting you see on TV or in magazines or on websites. And if you're not mentally prepared for this from the get-go, you could be setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment. Public land deer hunting, it is a serious challenge, so you need to go into it with realistic expectations and goals based on that challenge. And you need to be mentally prepared for the obstacles that are certainly going to be appearing in your way. Now, over the years, I've chatted with a lot of great deer hunters about these topics. And two in particular touched on this mental aspect in relation to public land. So first, we're going to hear from Tony Peterson, who's an outdoor writer for magazines such as Bowhunter Magazine and North American Whitetail, who specializes in public land deer hunts. Here he is talking about the importance of reasonable goals. And I, I really think one of the reasons that we shed hunter numbers is I run into a lot of, a lot of let's say, kind of 18 to 25-year-old crowd that comes in and they're, they're setting their sights on, you know, 140-inch-plus bucks every year, and they're not, they're not able to do it because that's so difficult, and they become frustrated with the process. And we've, in, in, in some ways, we're kind of skipping that natural progression of the hunter where everybody used to start out, you know, hunting squirrels with a 22 and maybe moving up to rabbits and maybe pheasants and turkeys and then deer. And you were happy with whatever deer you shot first. And we're, a lot of people are starting out with expectations that are just, you know, to me, kind of insane. Um, 
And yeah. I think, you know, and I'm, I'm part of that problem too. I mean, I work for these magazines and these TV shows where we present this, this false reality out there where if you look at you know, what the average, what the average person kills with a bow per year, I mean, it's like, you know, anybody that's out there killing 115 inch bucks every year, I don't care if you're in Iowa or Michigan or Pennsylvania or South Carolina or wherever, if you're killing a buck like that, you're doing something better than most people out there. And you bump it right up and you go, okay, how about 130 inches, which is a great deer. If anybody's out there consistently killing those deer, even in the good states, they're really doing something right. And like you said, most people with their, with their goals, I tell people all the time, just hunt for what makes you happy. Nobody else cares what you kill. There's like three people in your life that actually care what size of a buck you kill. The rest of them really don't. So if that deer walks in and you'd be stoked to shoot it, just shoot it. Who cares what everybody else thinks? And to follow that up, we've got another writer and DIY specialist, Eddie Claypool, who had some great advice to share on the mental side of these types of hunts and then also the importance of your attitude and, like Tony just said, the importance of having fun. That's what we're talking about here is how to get some means together and go do it, have fun, don't forget fun. You know, even when you go do it on your own, you can get in that binge of trying to be so successful that you put too much pressure on yourself, and that's one of my greatest problems. I, I, I slow, I'm kind of like a, you know, an addict there. I have a problem if I don't watch myself, I'll fall off the fence, mm-hmm. you know, and, on, and I get on that side of wanting to put pressure on myself, you know, and I just have to stop and have a complete change of heart, mind, and approach, and start over. And that's happened many times in my days. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to stay on the bandwagon of have fun, because whether you're under pressure, whether you're anal, or whether you're just having fun, it's not really going to change what goes on in the field. As a matter of fact, I think people do worse when they're under pressure. You know what I mean? So true. And, uh, you know, so it's all about bow hunting for whitetails in a fall setting, doing it on your own, learning from the good and the bad of the trip, and, uh, you know, and, and trying to get better at it and just having fun. Yeah, I definitely find myself in a similar camp as you in that I, I'm so, so passionate about it, so right. invested right. in it that I, I put right. so much pressure on myself. And to your point, you know, I'll, I'll be out there and I'm getting yep. angry at myself with yep. the situation yep. and frustrated. And then all of a yep. sudden you have those moments, hopefully you have yep. a moment where you're like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, this yeah. is supposed to be fun. You know, know. why are you doing yeah. all this if you're just going to be right. miserable the whole time? So it, Exactly. It, and to your point, I really do think that when you flip that mindset, when you're able to catch yourself and, and yeah. keep that positive attitude, that's when right. you end up being the most ready I, for the moment. Yeah. That's when you're the most, you know, prepared and emotionally yeah. and physically capable of pulling off a successful hunt or seeing that yeah. deer and getting the good shot or whatever it might be. So really your mindset can have such yeah. an influence on how an actual hunt oh. plays out. Um, well... Just take that to sports. I mean, when you're in a good mindset and you get on the field and you feel in control and happy and, you know, everything's going well, you're going to perform at a superior level versus if you go out there browbeating one day, some guy just knocked a fire out of you and you, you're like, whoa, I, you know, I feel like a little insignificant punk out here. You know, you're not going to perform well or maybe, you know, the, you hate you you just had a fight to wife that <laughs> you know you're not going to play ball as good that day so it's like that with hunting it's you know go out there and uh, forget the TV hype and forget all of the you know industry hype 
and go out there and perform at a personal, private level, you'll be you'll be satisfied whatever the results then, you know. And here's Tony again with just a little bit more of the same. We talk about a lot of different things with bow hunting, but every one of us has that buddy that's like gets really down really quick. You know, he's not a he's not a Zen master at all. Yep. And if your if your attitude starts to tank with running into people, you're gonna hunt like you've never done it in your life and it's going to get worse. And so you just got to learn to accept that and move on quickly because people are going to screw up your hunts. And, you know, somewhere along the line, you're going to bumble into some dude set up too. You know, you're going to be that guy. So it just happens. Yeah. I got to believe that's probably, like you said, that's, that's got to be one of the very most important things when you're hunting in this type of situation is just going into it with the right attitude and knowing that you're going to have to adjust and make the best of it. Because like you said, if you, you know, if your mindset is gone, if you lose confidence and, and lose your focus, you know, your, your, yep. your odds of success are, are really dramatically plummeting just based on that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So once we've got our mindset in order, the next thing we need to do when planning a public land deer hunt is to figure out where to go. And this really is the crux of a lot of public land hunts because, you know, finding the right area and the right property and then eventually even just the right spot on that property, this can make or break your experience. And there's a lot to cover here too. Many of the best public land deer hunters we've talked to, they, they all have kind of a specific process for how they find these spots. So we're going to hear from a bunch of different guys on this topic, and you're going to hear a few of these ideas over and over. But I'm specifically including all of that because I think the repetition from each of these experts is really going to help drill home the message on this. So be sure to keep your ears open for those consistencies. That said, Tyler Reidenauer is a friend of mine from Michigan who's probably best known from his work with Antler Geeks and other outdoor writing and videography, and he here has some helpful high-level input on how he gets this process started for himself. Most of what we do, a lot of times the only scouting we do before we show up, it's it's all on the computer. Um, you know, there's so many assets now, and, you know, with all this, you know, all the state, you know, game game divisions, um, you know, they, they all have the public lands listed on, you know, on their, their government website for the most part. Um, so you can get an idea right there of kind of where they're located, um, you know, the acreage. Um, I guess the biggest things we look for when you're just looking for a piece of ground initially is, you know, we try to stay at least an hour away from any, you know, major city center. Um, it's just a lot of times you end up, <laughs> you know, in a little dinky town in a, in a sleazy hotel somewhere, but um, you get away from the town and, uh, you know, there's a lot less, a lot less people there. Um, so that's the big, you know, the big thing, I guess, initially. Um, and then just picking them apart, you know, I mean, looking for the same types of things that you would look for on, you know, really any piece of ground. Um, pinch points that are leading in, you know, in and out of the public stuff that's on the borders and, uh, Looking outside of the public land too is a you know a, a big piece of it. You know, you can't just look at that one chunk. Um, you know, maybe a chunk of timber that's 2,000 acres, and there may not be a single stitch of crop on it. But if you can find where there's crops right on the border in certain places, you know, especially early season, late season, um, it, it gives you an idea where you can you know you can at least get close to those deer that are on feeding patterns. Um, you know, as far as states go and regions of the state and stuff like that, um, th there's always those famed counties, um, you know, I guess in really every big buck state, and I try to avoid them. Um, <laughs> you know, if coming from Michigan, 
all of Kansas is better than <laughs> is better than home. Right. All of Iowa, for the most part, is better than home. Um, you know, sure, there's certain little pockets and little regions of those states that are, you know, the absolute, you know, best of the best. You know, they kill the most booners. They kill the most, you know, there's the most 200-inch deer that have come out of that county, whatever. Um, I'm happy with shooting 140 or 150-inch deer on public ground. Um, you know, and a lot of times that next county over that nobody ever says anything about is just as good, really. Right. So don't, uh, I guess, don't take some of that stuff to heart too much, and uh, don't be afraid to venture out away from those well-known areas a little bit. Moving on, here's Tony again giving his thoughts on the process he takes to find public land. It, it depends. If I'm looking for, I, I live just north of the Twin Cities, so if I'm looking for a place around here to hunt, my process will be a little bit different than, let's just say last night, for example, I couldn't sleep because I kept thinking about some of these walk-in areas in South Dakota I started hunting last year. And so, you know, I, I snuck out of the bedroom and started looking on my iPad <laughs> at aerial photos at midnight last night, looking up just some of the public land there. And, and for me, the biggest part of the process, especially if I'm looking for an out-of-state hunt, um, which I do a lot, is just that time on the aerial photos. Um, I, know, I know some people like to go on the Internet forums and stuff and, you know, hey, any good places in southwestern Oklahoma or something like that, but... You know, that information is just not vetted, and I'm not saying you can't get good information that way, but for me, I pick a state I want to hunt, and I'll just, let's, let's just use like Nebraska as an example. I love Nebraska. I'll say, I want to go to Nebraska and hunt the rut. The first thing I'm going to do is figure out where the big cities are in Nebraska. Now, there really aren't very many. There's only a couple, and they're on the east side of the state. So I'm going to look for a place in the state that has no people. I want to get away from people because hunting pressure, anybody that hunts public land knows hunting pressure is just like your number one enemy, no matter what. It, to me, it trumps everything. It trumps weather. It trumps season timing, anything. And so I just want to start looking in an area where there just probably won't be very many people. And then once I started identifying some public land places there, then I get on the aerial photos and really dig in and look and see whether those specific parcels have something that offers a whitetail hunter. It's kind of how I start. So elaborate on that last piece for us. Um, What are you looking for when you're on the aerial? What does quality public land terrain or property look like for you from an aerial view? Uh, First off, the first thing I'm going to look at is access. If it's got a whole bunch of, uh, you know, walking trails or logging roads or if it, if it looks like it's really easy to access, I'll skip it. But if I find a place that, you know, maybe has one access point or two access points, um, that then I'll start digging in. And then I'm looking for, with whitetails, one of the first things I always look for, a lot of people go and look for food sources. They'll look for those ag fields or, you know, some kind of food source on there. But for me, I look for water. Um, I my, my absolute favorite type of, of whitetail spot to hunt is something with a with moving water in it. I just love creeks, streams, rivers, something like that. I know if I find moving water, I'll find probably pretty decent whitetail cover. I'll be able to find a crossing somehow, whether I can actually see the low spots on the river in uh, the aerial photos. I mean, this aerial photography, the satellite photography, now you can actually zoom in and see rocks sticking out of the water and tell which way the river's flowing, tell how shallow it is. Um, It's just amazing. But for me, that's what I start with. I want want some kind of moving water to start with. 
And so you're looking at that moving water as something that's going to be a tool sort of for you. So you know that you can, you'll be able to know some things right out the gate because of the fact that you know that deer will relate to that moving water in some certain way, or like yep. you mentioned, cross it. And, and I imagine maybe you use that type of thing for access in and out of a property too, maybe? Oh, absolutely. It, access is huge, covers your noise. You're usually below the banks, uh, you know, provided it's not too big of a river. Um, you can wade most of them. But there are a couple other things. If I have to cross a river to hunt the other side for some reason, I can leave 90% of my competition behind because they won't do it. Um, just as, It's the same thing like climbing a great big hill or a bluff. I'll look for that too. But with the rivers, especially if you get on bigger chunks of federal land, there'll be a lot of public grazing on there, cattle grazing. And so there's only going to be so many places with decent cover that whitetails like. Now, this is this would be different if I were looking for mule deer antelope or something, obviously. But for whitetails, you want the best, thickest cover you can find. Most of the time, that's that's right next to the rivers or the creeks. Um, you know, it might be only just, you know, patches of cottonwoods or something, but it'll be better than the surrounding area. And so you know that. You know there'll probably be whitetails there. There's usually agriculture pretty close to those river, you know, those the watersheds there's usually the right stuff there and on top of that because rivers are low you can use them like use them for access like you said but there's also a lot of times a lot of really good pinch points and funnels along rivers because of the bends and it's just it's just a great starting point most of the time this whole idea that tony brings up about using water when trying to find a good place on public land or when trying to hunt a good piece of public land it makes a whole lot of sense and it is something that i've actually used in my own hunts as well for example on my montana public land hunts i've taken in the past the last couple years i've used rivers to access hunting locations and this coming year on my minnesota hunt we'll be using rivers and lakes to actually get to hard to reach portions of this public land to get after some of those deer that maybe haven't been bothered by other hunter so makes a lot of sense it's a great idea now moving forward bernie berenger is our next guest he's another one of those public land specialists and he is the author of the freelance bow hunter and he actually talks about this process of finding quality public land he talks about this in his book the freelance bow hunter and he talked about it on one of our very first podcast episodes ever so here is what he had to say in that early conversation yeah, I think that's probably the part that people seem to like the most about the book is the process that I explain how to go through to, you know, you're starting wide, you haven't even decided what state you're going to go through, and you're getting down, and, and you're you're working it down from that broad approach all the way down to the exact tree you're going to hang your stand into in some state somewhere in a piece of property. Well, how do you get from point A to point B uh, is a pretty important process, and uh, I really think that the key to it is being able to do the research. And when I first started doing this, there was absolutely nothing compared to what there is today as far as research tools. You know, um, your website, my website, bowhuntingroad.com, has a lot of resources. This book has 60 pages of information about which states are the good states and what parts of the state produce the biggest bucks and and so forth. Yeah, and um, there's so much information out there. You can get on Google Earth. You know, I've killed deer in places that I found on Google Earth. And um, so, you know, if you start wide and you decide, okay, you know, how much of the tag costs? How, how do I get a tag? Um, the over-the-counter states. And then I go through this process in pretty good detail in the book. And, you know, if, if you want to hunt Iowa, it's going to take you at least three years to draw a tag. You have to have at least two preference points and possibly three in some of the zones. So 
um, you're not just going to go to Iowa this fall. Um, you could go to uh, Missouri or North Dakota or Kentucky or some of these good quality states that have over-the-counter tags. So you got to decide which state you're going to go to first. And then um, you're going to look at what public land is available in the state, how much pressure it gets, and um, and then, you know, once you've decided which piece of property you're going to go to, then, then you're actually looking for the spots. And you can do a lot of that online, too. You, you, know, you know, like I said, with Google Earth, you can see potential deer travel corridors. Um, today's, the forums today, you know, you can go on there, and it's amazing. I, I've put stuff on a forum and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to this part of the state. Does anybody hunt there? Can I, can I get a piece of advice? And, I mean, I had a guy actually... Um, that offer to drive me around and show me some spots. Wow. And uh, so, you know, the forums are, are a great place to mine information. So a lot of that um, can be done before you ever leave home. And here's Eddie Claypool again with his take. I can't tell you, you know, if I would suggest anywhere other than just pick a state close to you. If, not, if you're not going to, if you're looking to travel, if you're at home, you already know what you're dealing with. But if you're wanting to go out of state, as I have so much over my life, just pick any of the common sense states that have whitetails, and then if you do your homework, ferret out, you know, the hidden public places. And all states have numerous low-profile hidden public lands. Um, I have hunted some little old patches of public in Kansas and different states that were 60, 80 acres, little spots that don't even show up on the radar and taking good bucks off them with very little people around. Um, so, you know, where, if we address the topic of where, that's just a total personal preference because you can hunt them you know, in any type of habitat from the northwest of the United States to the east to the south to the north. Just, um, I just leave that to each individual to make his own decisions on where he wants to go because other than going to Iowa or some of these premium spots and, you know, where the outfitting and everything's so prevalent, where they grow the big deer, other than those which go without saying uh, and going on a guided hunt, if you're the average Joe, just whatever tickles your fancy is my description of where to go. And then once Eddie picks a state, here's what he does next. Well, I tell you, there's almost an endless amount of avenues a guy can pursue on that. Uh, Game and Fish is a starting place, you know, to see what they have shown on their hunting atlases and on their walk-in programs. And, you know, every state has numerous, countless names for the different types of land they have accessible. Some of it will be public. Some of it will be private. You know, they have, you know, access, yes, programs and whatever you want to call them for pub private land hunting. So you got to dig through the Game and Fish and dig deep. I mean, you got to go through each link and to the next link and look and you'll find uh, what you can find. Then, you know, a lot of times, a lot of the ones I've found that are off the map are little old pockets that are, you know, uh, county park type things or around impoundments. Uh, there will be little public areas that don't show up on game and fish radar. They're more of a local level thing. Uh, you got to dig deep. Uh, you know, sometimes I haven't found my gems until I actually got into an area and actually started physically hunting it. I didn't even know they were there pre, pre-trip. pre um, You know, it's a lot to be said for being local. We know how the locals all know their grounds like the back of their hand, but 
you know, if you pick a good area and go there and become semi-local to it over a period of time, you're, you're going to find some hidden gems that'll be there. So there's always that unforeseen blessing that you'll get from picking an area and going there for a year. Um, and I'm the world's worst about, you know, spending maybe three trips in a year to go to a spot. I'll usually go in the dead of winter, uh, take a long weekend and take two or three to four days and travel to a spot and camp in it in the winter and learn it, scout it, do my reconnaissance. Uh, it's invaluable if you've already got a piece of dirt to hunt on to go and look at it in the dead of winter for the scouting. You know, it's so great that time of year. All the rut sign is there. The people are gone, and you can really do some power scouting in the winter. But you also just get familiar with the people, the country, and you'll start picking up these little hidden gems that'll be there. You know, people talk, and all this stuff is, you know, the locals guard it pretty carefully, usually. And unless you're there and giving yourself a chance to, you know, to be in the frying pan, you may not be able to research it ahead of time. There are plenty of places to research. And, you know, you may need to pick a larger, more higher-profile area from, you know, off the Internet or Game and Fish or local uh, websites and go and start it and then you can get into finding these other little spots of your own. To follow that up we're going to hear from Todd Mead, a public land hunter from New York who's also the author of several books and he shared his process as well. I do a lot of research um, and another thing too is I have a pretty big network of people across the country. Um, you know, I shot competitive archery for 25, 30 years, and I've met a lot of people across the country. So that usually gives me a relatively safe area to start. Like if I know somebody that lives, say I know somebody that lives in Michigan or whatever, and I, I say, well, how's the hunting near you? And then we talk a little bit, and I'm like, well, if I was coming out there hunting, where do you think a good area of the state would be to go? And, you know, they give me their opinion, then I'll, I'll go online, I'll look at it, and uh I'll start looking around a little bit and then I'll, I'll search different hunting forums to see if anybody talks about those places. And, uh, I, I guess you'd call me a stalker. <laughs> like I don't, I don't say anything. I just read all the stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then if I say I go like online on a forum and I find somebody I'm looking at it and I'm like, Ooh, like actually I, I've hunted Colorado, the same, same place for years in uh, elk hunting. And uh, so then this year I was looking at a different area. I just wanted to explore a little bit. And I'm like, holy cow, there's a guy that's signed on right there in his hometown is the same exact place I'm going. <laughs> so I just sent the guy a note. I said, uh, hey, uh, you know, I've hunted out there since 1990 and uh, I'm coming out. Do you know anything about this area? I mean, it's just a generic random, you know, question or whatever. And you'd be amazed at how people help you. And as long as I'm not infringing on him, like he's going to give me information and uh, like I get a lot of information that way. And okay, for every 10 times you do it, you're probably going to strike out eight times, but then you might just hit that one person that could really help you. And then I'll also go through like every, almost every state has uh, on their website, they have conservation areas. Um, I click on almost every single conservation area and I study everyone and I write down what it has that I like. And then I, if I find enough of the stuff that I like in it, then I, I set it aside. I'm like, okay, this one has to get looked at further. 
So then I'll go down and then I'll come up with say 30 or 40 of them. And then I'll just keep on narrowing it down till I find the place I want. So then when I decide where I'm going to go, I have my place I'm going, but I have no idea how many people are going to be there. So I'm like crossing my finger. It's not going to be overwhelmed with people. So when I get there, I have a plan. I'm going to, I'm going to look at this place, that place, and that place. And I'm usually with my father and either one or two of my friends. So there's like four of us that travel together. So each of us bites a chunk off and we all go in our own directions. And then we come back and we decide it's worth hunting or it's not worth hunting. And uh, if it's a maybe, then we'll, uh, we'll give it a, you know, a couple more days or whatever. But if it's a no, then I go to my next place on there, even if it's a three-hour drive away. Okay, we're going to the next place. And I won't waste time in some place once I get there that it, it doesn't show what I want it to show. And uh, so I don't get sucked into some place that I shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's the secret. You just You have to be willing to move, and you have to be willing to blow a week or two of your vacation. If I come home with nothing, I don't care because uh, – I've come home with nothing before, and if I come home with nothing, then it's it's a bad trip if I didn't learn anything. Yeah. But if I learn something, then I'm probably going to capitalize on that in the in the next trip. Yeah. So I want to I want to take a jump back to something, and then I want to talk a little bit more about those first couple of days of your hunt. But first, you said that you're looking at all these pieces of public land, like you know you find it on the state website, and it sounds like you're looking at maps and stuff. And you mentioned that you're looking for certain good things on these properties. And if a property has enough of the good things, then you're going to focus on that. What are the things you're looking for? What are those good things that you're trying to key in on that tell you that this property could have potential? One thing that I look for is I'm from the Adirondacks. So I'm looking for pieces of land that have a lot of timber on it, which you know, of course, sometimes that's hard to find in the Midwest. Uh, Number one, I know if I find timber, it's going to keep a lot of people out of it because people are afraid of the woods, uh, no matter how big they are. So if I can find acreage that's, uh, you know, anything above like uh, a thousand acres of wooded area, then I'll definitely circle that. Like this is a place I need to go because a thousand acres, it might not seem much, but if you're in a thousand acres of woods and you've never really hunted woods, you've hunted field edges, stuff like that, it can be really intimidating for the average guy. Mm-hmm. So I look for that and I look for places I can access, uh, only by boat. So if I can only get there with a boat, then I'm almost sure it's going to be good. So, uh, you know, I, I do that, whether it's a river, a lake, a stream, like whatever it is. So those two things out of the way. Um, I also look for areas that either are closed to hunting Um, it might be a place around there that has, there's no hunting allowed. It might be owned by like a government agency, um, might be owned by, uh, say like a church group and they own a big piece of land and there's no hunting allowed on it because then I know there's no hunting allowed on it. It works as a sanctuary Mm -hmm. for deer on the public land and that's where they're going to go. Um, I look at plat maps to see who owns the land around it. And then I'll research that online. I'll be that silent stalker again. <laughs> in uh, some, some places, I one place that I found was really good because I knew that this person hunted on their own land and they were a, a presence in social media. And I'm like, I just found your land. <laughs> 
in uh, in a bordered public land. Wow. And and I had read where they had killed like a hundred ninety inch deer on it. And I'm like, there's no way that deer wasn't living on that public land. Wow. So I mean, you have to. It it goes back to the whole thing about you have to be a little more motivated than everybody else, and that's kind of what has led to, to me being successful. I think. All right, so we've heard a lot now about how to find quality public hunting locations. And our next guest, Aaron Warburton of The Hunting Public, he's going to help us shift from that topic towards the next one, which is not only how do you pick a good property, but then that next step, which is how do you begin the scouting process? How do you do additional research to learn everything you need to know about that area? And Aaron and his hunting partners, they spend a tremendous amount of time on this thing, scouting the properties they hunt. And in particular, they are looking for buck bedding areas in many cases. And if you want to hear more about that aspect of Aaron's scouting, you should definitely check out the full episode we did with him, which was episode 165. But here's a brief intro to his scouting process and how he begins narrowing things down on a piece of ground. So the, the first thing you do is lay out the public map of the area. And then you start figuring out where all the access points are. Um, start looking at where the pressure is. So you're looking for boot tracks. You're walking those access trails. You're you're looking for you know tape in a in the tree marking um, tacks. Anything that's going to mean mean hunters is what you want to stay away from for the most part. Um, so you you're taking that map and you're crossing off a lot of it. But you you can't um, how do I put this? You've you've got to keep an open mind when it comes to every inch of that public piece. So if it's a couple thousand acres in size and you cross off a lot of the access points and uh, areas most likely to uh, to harbor hunters, then you still end up with quite a bit of land that uh, may be untouched. And a mature buck, the interesting thing with them is they will go wherever they don't ever encounter humans. I mean, sometimes you'd be surprised it may only be 30 yards off a gravel road. But if nobody goes there and they have that wind advantage on a specific day or whatever, like they may well bed there and and spend a lot of time right there. So, and that's really, that's kind of how the buck nest is. That area gets hunted. A lot of people think, when they watch the buck nest video that uh, that area doesn't get a ton of hunting pressure but it's actually the opposite if you watch the second video in that video blog series you'll see hunters walk right underneath the stand um that night when they're headed out but uh there's tons of hunting pressure on that piece it's just one little small out of the way area that those bucks bed in and there's a couple other ones like that on that public area as well so the I guess the point there is is don't overlook don't overlook anything really. Was there anything that you saw when you were looking at this property like before you set foot on it? Like when you looked at it on a map and we're we're looking for these pieces of public land and when you saw this, did you say, Well, okay, it's a couple thousand acres, it's definitely worth taking a look at or was there something else that that, that made you say, Yeah, this is a good one? I uh, what I'm I guess the larger question I'm getting at is is there anything I can look at digitally beforehand to say yes this has potential or no this is not worth spending time on? Yeah, I should get more specific into that, like you mentioned. Um, if you if you take it, that piece and you and you look for the edges of it, you look for the areas that are hard to access, and then you look for the overlooked spots. 
you you kind of measure up each area to the next one. So the spots that we avoid are those chunks that are accessible from all sides. We don't, and we don't. I wouldn't say we necessarily avoid them. We just don't prioritize them as high as some of the other areas. You know, if there's an area where you can only access from one side of it, and it's a huge block. You know, it's going to take some serious legwork to get to the back of it. Then, then those are the ones that we're spending the most time on. You know, those back corners, a lot of times up the boundary lines are are good. The ones that require you to to you know cross a creek or whatever. We're always looking for access access barriers you know or, or areas that are harder to get into but with that said a lot of times those then anymore it seems like people are are getting braver and they're going back there that far well they may walk right past the spot right next to the parking lot that's pretty dead gum good and we do we do see that so i think sometimes people try to think too big whenever they look at those big public areas and they look for they try to find the biggest public area possible and then look for the farthest back corner of that big area. And we do the same. But don't overlook these little 30 and 40 acre chunks that have one access point where you can monitor hunting pressure. If you drive by that thing a couple nights a week and you don't see a truck parked there at that access point, there's probably a couple of good buck bedding areas on that piece. And and the one advantage those little those little areas like that is that they... Uh, a lot of times they have private land around that may not get hunted as hard. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't take much, um, obviously it doesn't take much hunting pressure on those little areas to push them off, but it also doesn't take much of an absence in hunting pressure to bring them back on. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Throwing it back now to Tony, he's going to go into more specifics on how he scouts a spot. Um, if, if I'm close to home, it looks like I'm walking every inch I can because that's what I try to do and you know I'm looking for the typical winter scouting stuff of course you know the old scrapes and rubs rubs mostly I really like rubs um, but most of the time I'm halfway looking for hunter sign if I go into a property and I see you know the trees are trimmed up or there's stands left there or there's litter all over or something and I just can't get away from the the obvious sign of hunters I'm probably going to write that off and look for somewhere else um when I travel out of state, I, I'm starting to do this more where I'll go on a turkey hunt somewhere and scout out new properties while I'm turkey hunting. In fact, you know, in on April 1, I'm heading out to South Dakota to uh, turkey hunt some walk-in areas that I hunted last fall, and I just want to check out some more ground. And then a little later, I'm going down to Missouri, northern Missouri, to hunt public land for turkeys, and I'm going to scout that out for deer, too. And it that's a good way to get familiar with the area without having the pressure of killing a big buck. Um, but if you can't do that, this one of the most important things about this process. If you, if you know, if you're going to make a go at it and decide you're going to hunt public land, especially if you want to do one of these out of state trips with your buddies, if you have any way to build in a day or two or three to scout, just glass, just walk and figure out if your, your pre hunt research was correct that is so valuable compared to showing up and having to hunt from day one. And I think one of the reasons that I've had quite a bit of success public land hunting is because before I had kids, I used to just leave for like four days, five days ahead of the hunt and just tell my wife, I'll be home when I'm going to be home. And I would scout nonstop for four days before I started hunting. 
and you got to, I got to glass all those river bottoms and walk them all and figure out if the deer were moving there or not. And that information, without having the pressure of carrying your bow, is just so valuable when you start hunting. You just, you just solidify all of your beliefs. Or, you know, if what you thought was going to be awesome turns out to be bunk, you've got time to move on to the next one and figure it out. And scouting, scouting that way is, is just ridiculously valuable. It's more valuable than hunting in a lot of situations. So, so here's a key consistency that I think we just heard here from Tony and Adam. It was this importance of scouting for sign of other hunters. It seems that this is just as important, if not more important in many cases, than actually looking for deer signs. So that's a key thing I think that we should take note of that a few people have already mentioned. We're probably going to hear about it here again too. But continuing on, here's another friend of mine and a deer hunting savant, Andy May. And he has some similarly helpful public land scouting tips. I'm definitely a map freak. Um, I have, you know, uh, binders of each state with the properties that I hunt, the properties that I plan on hunting, and the prep, like backup properties, you know, public, you know, private, that sort of thing. And I have, you know, the aerials, and then I have um, the uh, the topo maps and all that stuff. And I, I, I do, I really zone in on that. But for me personally, I, I can find out the obvious stuff, like the stuff that probably everyone in this room can find. Which is what? Your, your typical funnels, um, you know, you, some, it's very easy to, to see like river crossings. Um, now with like Google Maps and stuff, you can zone in. You can actually find deer trails, yeah. um, you know, and see where there's a lot of intersecting trails. Um, you know, bedding areas, you know, depending on the type of habitat, very easy to see and predict. Um, so what I, I find more for me personally, I get, I get more... Um, detail with boots on the ground. So I, I always try to, and it helps because these states aren't terribly far from me. Montana would be hard to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, but I like to get out there uh, in the spring, early spring, you know, after the snow melt before green up, especially if I'm planning like a rut, a pre rut, rut trip, late October, you know, early November, maybe that second week of November, that's when that sign is really visible. You know, you can see the rubs, you can see the scrapes, you can see the trails, everything is you know, was just made a few months ago, you can really dial in and see where kind of everything comes together and, and really pick out those high percentage spots. So for me, boots on the ground is, is, is a kind of a necessity. And to be honest with you, for me, that's like just part of the enjoyment of it. I like that as much. I, yeah. I like trying to scout and figure out deer and going on these adventures in, in brand new areas where I don't even know what's there, success or not. I, I actually enjoy that maybe more than actually getting getting a buck on the yeah. ground you know what i mean i yeah. just I've, I've really come i've just become addicted to that constant stimulation of new you know put me in an unfamiliar area with the bow in my hand and the wind in my face and it's like following that up we're going to do kind of a rapid fire jump with three guys here sharing their scouting techniques so bernie Beringer, then we're here from tyler reidenauer and then todd mead then, of course, once you're on the property, then that's, that's the real key to finding the right spot. And you're going to hunt differently than you would if you owned a piece of property or had permission on a piece of property. Um, I call it hunting aggressively, and that's a really important key to what makes this, this all work. Because, you know, if you had, say, a couple hundred acres of, of ground that you hunt, um, you'd probably have a couple bedding areas there that you would never go into. You might have a sanctuary that you really avoid at all costs, and and uh, you would know 
where the deer tend to feed and where they tend to travel and um, where the food sources are. But if you go to a new piece of property, you got to start from scratch. And you're going to walk right through those bedding areas and bust the deer out. And, and you hate doing it, but it's part of – you have to do it because you need to know where they are. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you can learn the travel corridors uh, by looking at trails and following tracks and looking at scrapes and rubs. And, uh, you know, you really have to you have to get out on the ground and, uh, and learn the property. The, the temptation is when you first get there is to just, here's a good-looking spot, put up a tree stand and get in it. But that's not necessarily the best way to hunt because you, you don't have the confidence that it takes. If you're on a rut hunt, you might want to sit in a stand all day. Um, you want to have confidence that you're in the right spot before you ever get in there because you're going to be second-guessing yourself all the time if you don't. And you, uh, so you got, you've got to know what's over the next hill. And that way you have confidence when you do get in the stand that you're in the right spot. So those are all pretty important keys to it. It's, it all depends, you know, I guess sometimes if we're close enough and we can, you know, it's reasonable to drive there in the preseason, we can. Um, you know, that's, where we go in Kansas is, you know, it's 18 hours away. So it's, it's tough to, you know, to make that kind of a drive, uh, you know, in the, in the summer, just the amount of time that it takes you to get out there and get back. Um, it's, there's usually just too much going on, you know, with life to, to be able to carve out that kind of a time, time frame to get out there and scout. Um, you know, we went to North Dakota a few years ago and never set foot on anything until we got there. It was just all, you know, on the computer beforehand because that was a, you know, 20-some-hour drive. Um, closer play, you know, Indiana, um, like I said, I went down there last winter um, shed hunting just for a day at least to get, a you know, a little bit of an idea of what it was like because it's a close enough drive. And, you know, Ohio, you know, we've, we've spent a fair, you know, a fair number of days back and forth from there you know scouting different places so it it just all depends i guess on location so can you can you elaborate tyler for us on exactly in these instances where you do actually go in person to scout whether that be you know in the spring or summer or maybe you show up at the property in the fall and you and you want to do some scouting before actually hunting can you walk us through what that scouting looks like you know what are the things you are looking for what are you trying to identify what are you trying to learn well, I mean, aside from, I guess, you know, what you'd look for really on, on any piece of ground, um, the big things we look for is, you know, where the parking areas are. Um, a lot of these public land areas have maybe, you know, mountain biking trails or equestrian trails or, or some other, you know, type of trail system where hunters can use those to access, you know, and get farther back in a lot easier. Um, and I, you can do it from home a lot of times, you know, even if you can get a hold of, you know, the the little offices a lot of times at the, the piece of public ground or the, the state forest, whatever it is, um, they'll have little brochures and stuff a lot of times at the facility that have those trails on them. And they're hard to find online, but if you call them up, they'll send you one of those brochures so you can study it in the off-season. And I'll actually go through, make a map on Google Earth once I've, you know, committed to a property, and I'll put all those trails in and I'll put all those parking areas in. And then you kind of you know, make a radius of where other people are going to go, and then you find those little pockets there, you know, that are too far away, um, you know, or maybe there's some type of terrain feature, you know, a river or, you know, some really, really steep stuff that most guys aren't going to go, you know, past um, and find those little pockets that are 
a lot of times not haunted at all. Um, you know, there's if you find a big enough piece of public ground, or even the, just the right one that's got those kind of land barriers, um, you know, you can you can essentially have private ground stuff that's hardly ever hunted because nobody wants to go that far. Uh, we we probably piss off a lot of people because we're kind of <laughs> like wild banshee Indians. Uh, we will walk through every single bit of the property. Like I'll, I'll cover every single bit of it. I mean, I'll walk, I'll zigzag, I'll do everything. And I'm sure people get pissed because it's in November. You're on public land. People are on their vacation and I'm walking all through the woods. <laughs> and uh, we all do the same thing. And what we do is we walk in the first day. We'll try to determine where do we want to go? Like, where do we want to start on the next day? And then like, I'll either mark it with my GPS um, like, okay, I'll, I'll mark the waypoint and then I'll have it right there. And, uh, like this will be number one, number two or whatever. And then the next day I'll go back there. We'll all go back to wherever we found and we'll hunt there in the morning and then we'll see what happens in the morning. We'll meet in the afternoon and then we'll come up with another game plan. And like, say you're hunting on like a, you know, public area that's 4,000 acres or something. And it's, it's on a bunch of different roads. We'll all go to a different road and we'll all do our thing. And then we'll come back and we'll discuss it. And then we'll make a plan from there. So after listening to all these guys talking about scouting, you know, these are some of the very best public land deer hunters out there. there there's one thing that stands out to me above all else. And it is just the absolute above all importance of scouting. This just, just can't be emphasized enough. And I think in a public land scenario like this, it's probably even more important than on private ground. I mean, as you can tell, a number of these guys prioritize scouting even over hunting. On short trips, they're even willing to sacrifice a precious day or two of hunting just to walk around and get to know a place. And another thing that seemed consistently mentioned was this need to dive into every area you possibly can and being much more aggressive with your scouting than you might be on private land. Because, you know, for one thing, you can't control anyone else's hunting pressure. And secondly, because you just need to find those heavy cover, hard to reach places and understand them if you're going to find big bucks consistently on public land. So once we've found our area to hunt and we've scouted it, maybe digitally or on the ground, now we can finally hunt. And I want to throw it over to Bernie again as he explains how he typically begins his public land hunts, how he uses trail cameras on them, and a bit more. And, uh, you know, first day I arrive at a new property, I rarely hunt the first day. I'm, I'm usually maybe glassing the property from the roads with a spotting scope, trying to figure out where the deer activity is. And the first stand that I put up is likely to be what I call an observation stand, where I'm actually putting a stand up in a place where I can have a good view of a large field or um, a open timber or something like that and try to get a better feel for what the movement looks like. And, and then throughout the week, then I'll narrow it down and narrow it down. And by the time I, um, you know, have, have three or four days under my belt, I'm usually pushing all my chips into one spot. You know, I'm cashing in. I'm going all in on one tree where this is the place I think it's going to happen, you know. Boy, the trail cameras are a really important component to the process. I, I, there's two reasons I, I like to use a lot of trail cameras. Number one, because I want to know what the potential of the area is as soon as possible. Um, I want to inventory the bucks, I guess, is the best way to put it, where, you know, if I've, I've been on hunts where I had a 125 or 130-inch buck walk by the first time I sat in the stand and I pass them up. Then I was there for a week, and that turned out to be the biggest buck I saw. 
you know, so the sooner you can get a handle on what the potential of the area is, the better off you are. And there's no better way to do that than with trail cameras. And in particular, I hang them both on trails and on scrapes. And scrapes, um, anytime after the about the last week in October, uh, third to last week in October, if you start putting trail cameras on scrapes and then use some good fresh urine or some beer lure in those scrapes, you'll inventory the majority of the box. Within three, four days, you'll have the majority of the box on camera. So you have a lot better chance, you have a lot better idea of what the potential is and what you should hold out for. And uh, so that's the first aspect. The second aspect is it will tell you what stage of the rut these deer are in based on how they're reacting. And, you know, you can look at them and see how, um, you know, how heavily they're working the scrapes and are their tarsal glands stained up like they've been rutting pretty hard. Are the does in the scrapes or just the bucks? Those will give you clues as to what the status of the rut is, and that will help you make decisions on stand placement. You know, are these bucks on the cruise, or are they starting to uh, uh, to get in a lockdown stage where they're actually coupled up with those and aren't traveling as much? Then you need to be focusing more on the bedding areas and so forth. So, yeah, trail cameras, I'm, I literally have four to six trail cameras out almost all the time when I'm hunting. Next, we're going to bring Aaron back, and, and I want to talk with him about his approach to hunting public land after completing all of that scouting he's done. And specifically, I asked him if he waits for anything in particular to start heading into his good spots, or if he just dives right in there. Uh, we usually dive right in. Um, we've scouted, most of these areas, we've, we've scouted the heck out of them, and we know where most of the bedding is. On, uh, and some of them we're more familiar with than others. The spot, the buck nest spot in particular, we're very familiar with because we've spent so many years hunting the immediate area. And what we noticed after we started putting more pressure on those bucks is they didn't leave. They just, I mean, they would eventually filter out. The very first day there was a ton of bucks in there, but the next the the next few times we went in there were fewer and fewer bucks. And then I also noticed that I started picking them up on different parts of the area on my other trail cameras, you know, at different times of the day. I started uh, picking up one of them, I remember, in daylight in the middle of October that we saw the very first night at the buck nest and uh, never saw him back there again for the rest of the fall. And what I think happens there is they are eventually detecting us from where we're in there hunting them. But all they're doing is moving a few hundred yards. And it's not really impacting the way that they're moving or behaving other than their change in bedding areas. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And then and that's what that's what we're seeing a, a lot of places too. Like we we dive right in to your point because of the added pressure. But you know, on public land, if they're dealing with that much pressure and you still can't push them out of there, I don't. I think a lot of folks on private land that are hunting super careful are almost too careful. You know what I mean? Right. Because they have they have uh, so many bedding areas and sanctuaries on their property. If we're seeing bucks move but not pick up and leave the the country, I mean that every situation is different, like we talked about earlier. But um, that is one thing that we have noticed a lot is they just what they detect that you're there, they'll just go to the next best spot. Next, I asked Aaron to describe one of his best spots on public land and why it's so good. And I think by hearing about this example, it might be able to help us all better understand what to look for when trying to find our own little public land hidey holes. Well, it's all surrounded by timber, um, trees that you can get a stand in. 
and uh, lots of other deer insulate them back there. Like you have to bump deer to get back to them. So if you're not, if you're afraid of spooking deer, then this style definitely is for you. Um, but with that said, this is the one area where there's no trees. Um, and I think it, that's simply it. There's no trees right there, so people can't hunt there. They won't hunt on the ground. Everybody that's in there has got a tree stand on their back or is, is planning on hunting out of a tree stand that they hung prior to that. And it's surrounded on all sides by these big timbered hills that attract quite a bit of hunting pressure. And those hills hold a lot of sign, too. I mean, you can go through there in a good acorn year, and there's giant rubs ripped up everywhere. But what what makes that spot so good is those bucks are bedded right next to water i've noticed that a lot they love bedding next to water or in very very close proximity to it it can be a big body of water a lake a pond a creek a river whatever they love water they love being close to it and like i mentioned there are no trees once you start trying to figure out how to hunt those bucks in the buck nest in october it becomes really hard because you just can't get within a couple hundred yards of them in a tree stand and they just don't they uh i, I think that's why they're there is because everybody's walking around the edge of that 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 crp field and they're hanging in those trees uh or or way up in the big timber where they're finding a lot of that sign but nobody's actually going down in there or, or they very rarely are when you look at it it's just a grass field you know, there's not really any other terrain change or habitat change other than the grass butts up to a creek. And right there where that edge forms is where they like to bet. And there's no trees along the edge of the creek that you can even get a stand in. Yeah. So nobody nobody ever goes in there. Now, and that's another misconception is, is uh, how far away people can be from those beds um, without bumping them. And people walk the edge of that field all the time. I'm talking like 200 yards from those deer. They walk in and out of this public property in that field, but they don't ever go go back into that corner because there's nothing that they can hang a tree stand in. So just keep that in mind and think about that for any property that you're hunting. If you're trying to keep the pressure off, even on private land, when those bucks are bedded, they, they don't mind you walking 200 yards away from them. A lot of times they don't know that you're there. You know, if you've got the wind right to where they're bedded at. But uh, in this situation, they people walk and, and hunt the heck out of that timber line that's 200 yards away from those bucks. Wow. But it keeps them out of there. Those, the lack of trees does. And finally, I asked Aaron to talk about entry and exit strategies when hunting public places. Yes, we are very cautious about entering and exiting those areas, but mainly just really close to the bedding. Um when we got to go somewhere that's a mile, two miles back in, we don't mess around for the first, you know, two-thirds of the trip. But when we get in there really tight to the bedding, we're we going at a snail's pace. I mean, you're stepping over twigs, making sure that you don't snap them. You're waiting for the wind to gust so that you can move. Some of these areas in timber, like if you're hunting hardwood timber, for instance, and you're going into a bedding location, you want you want it to be windy and wet is ideal. And uh, if it's not, if you're going in for like an evening hunt and the leaves are crunchy and it's pretty calm mid-afternoon, you're, you're just not going to be able to get real close to those 
those bedding locations because they're just going to hear you before you get there. Um, but we do. We, we go in a lot of times in the middle of the night almost, like uh, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm a pretty firm believer in going in for morning hunts way ahead of daylight because I think deer can see you better at gray light than they can when it's dark. And, uh, and, and getting our stand set up, you know, uh, about 30 minutes before that gray light even hits and using those headlamps that we use. That's a, that's another big thing. Um, as far as access goes when it's when every single hunt, we use those headlamps in and out and we're always waiting for the cover of darkness before we're, uh, going in or, or, or going out on an evening hunt. We're always going in, in the dark in the morning. We're going to bring Todd Mead back on, who's going to talk through his plans for hunting, a little bit of that scouting, and then again, how he avoids other hunters when he's beginning these actual hunts. It all depends on the area I'm in. Like, uh, if I go into an area and there are people hunting in there, like one of my biggest pet peeves is when I get to where I'm going and there's somebody parked there. And I'm like, oh, man. But then I'm like, wow, there's a lot of woods in there. Most people hunt, you know, certain areas all the time. They don't move around. So I'll go in there and I'll wander around. If the person isn't in an area that I found that I like, I'll stay in there. If they're in an area I found that I like, then I, I won't go back because I don't think it's fair to them. Even though it's public land, it's not fair to them. So when I'm in there looking around, I usually look for as many scrapes as I can find in a fairly tight area, um, you know, where they're not far apart. And I look for... Uh, multiple runways that come together like maybe two three four five runways that all come together around those scrapes and then i need some thick cover around there someplace and uh those are the places that i usually look for if i find all of that in one place like uh if, usually when i find a place like that i go back to the camp and i show my buddies and i mark it on my gps just so i know where it is so if they want to go there and I'm not going there. I could just give the waypoint to them. They they can go find it. Mm-hmm. And I mark on there the killing tree. <laughs> nice. Because because usually when I find a spot, I'm almost sure we can kill a, a good buck there. Yeah. Another trend here I think that's worth mentioning, and it's kind of related to a couple of other things I called out already, but it's just the simple importance of avoiding other hunters and doing whatever you have to do to get away from them. Again, almost more important than deer sign like we talked about earlier how you're scouting for hunter sign well you're also trying to find those places where there simply aren't going to be other people for specific reasons and you're going to continue that trend here with tyler right now who's got more thoughts on that very thing i mean more than anything distance um you know for the most part people are lazy um they don't want to walk that far especially carrying a tree stand um so it's just it's that extra, you know, half mile, that extra three quarters of a mile, um, and I mean some places I've gone as far as printing a map out and measuring out, you know, how far three quarters of a mile is, and using a compass, and uh, you know, actually making a circle around each public or each parking area, every access point, so you can see that's okay, that's where people are willing to walk to, and then you have the other areas, and that's where you start to focus and. Like I said, just you know, just getting away from them. Um, you know, all those different things you can use um, that you need to look at. Uh, you know, the, the trail systems, the the parking areas, anything like that. Um, it, you know, is 
it, it's all super valuable stuff. Um, and, you know, another tactic we've used, you know, a few times in the past is, is lakes and, you know, and even big rivers. Actually putting a boat in um, to access some of these places, and it, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of extra work, uh, you know, hauling a boat, loading it up, maybe going for an hour boat ride, um, and then hiking in from there. Um, but it's something people don't think about. And there was one day me and Tony were in, uh, in Ohio two or three years ago, launching a boat at, you know, four in the morning. And there were some guys getting ready to go duck hunting there. And they, you know, the look on their face was, was just priceless. You know, two guys with tree stands and camo and bows getting in a boat. And, you know, they had no, they just couldn't fathom what we could possibly have been doing. Um, you know, and we, we went in, it was about a 45 minute boat ride and, access to you know through a reservoir and you know we essentially had private land to hunt um a lot of those places that are you know that are reservoirs you know they may be you know federally owned state owned whatever they are um there's a lot of it that is physically inaccessible you can't walk to it you know there's places that are totally landlocked by private and the only way to get to them from the public is on the water um you know so that's another thing people can look at if you have you know, places like that where you live or, you know, where you hunt, um, it's the, honestly the best way to really guarantee you're going to be left alone. Um, the only other guy that may hunt it is, you know, people that have access to that private ground that borders it. You know, obviously they can come onto the public. Um, but from a public hunting standpoint, you know, that, that boat's going to be the only access. So it's a, it's a really good tactic and, Whenever we can, you know, we use it, and those places are a lot of times overlooked, too. You know, they may be, when you look at those, uh, you know, the pages from the state uh, that outline what the what the public land area is good for, you know, it may be a 4,000-acre, you know, piece, and three-quarters of it may be water, and, you know, they'll put on there, it's it's ideal for bass fishing and for duck hunting, and, you know, there's not a, doesn't say anything about deer hunting on it, um, because there's nowhere you can really walk to to deer hunt so they they often get overlooked and and really don't get deer hunted at all um it's they're they're kind of rare but when you find one they're they're definitely worth looking at famed michigan diy deer hunter john eberhart had more to add on this same topic that being getting into those tough to reach places to find bucks on public land it's very simple go to areas where other hunters are not willing to make the work effort to go to when I hunt public land, if I can walk in an upright walking position, I remember seeing a TV commercial with Michael Waddell with a climber stand on his back walking down a two-track going hunting. If you can walk in an upright position in Michigan on public land to any spot, I don't care where it is, it's worthless. I don't care how much sign there is, signposting. Uh, it was like any signposting, if it were done by a mature buck, it was probably done at nighttime, signposts. Because basically mature bucks, if they live to three and a half years old in Michigan, they just do not make themselves vulnerable during daylight hours. The only time they might is during the rut when they're actually on a hot doe. And that's just not the case in lightly pressured areas. So, so basically, if I can walk to a spot and it looks great, there's scrapes and there's rubs, if I can walk there... I'm setting it up. It isn't, isn't going to happen. Most of the spots I hunt on public land or even on a lot of private lands where I have permission with other hunters, 
Uh, I have to access my locations with waders, a canoe, a boat, or crawling through brush to get back to a little clearing or an island someplace. Because if you're not, that's where the mature deer go. If there is a mature deer on the property, that's where the hunters that are hunting there are going to push him. That's the only place back in those really deep, secure zones where a mature buck might feel comfortable moving during daylight hours without actually being on a hot doe. So the last person I want to bring on here to wrap up our hunting section is Eddie Claypool. And you're going to notice within uh, Eddie's contribution here, he does talk a lot about scouting. And, and really, if you listen to the last 25 minutes here, as we've been talking about the actual hunt, a lot of the hunt is still scouting related. So it's scouting, hunting, hunting, scouting, scouting, hunting. That seems to be, again, something that's emphasized by many of these folks. You constantly need to be learning. You constantly need to be finding the out-of-the-way areas and adjusting based off hunting pressure and what these deer are doing. So Eddie Claypool here is going to talk us through how he actually takes some pre-hunt trips to do some of that scouting, to prepare for the hunt, to do a little bit more prep work, and then he'll move on to you know what he's actually focused on once he shows up to actually be in the tree, where he's focused on hunting, the types of setups he's looking for, and we'll go from there. Another little camping trip and put the boot to it. Uh, I will drive a I want to go around the perimeter and learn the access points and figure out, you know, where most of the masses are going to be coming from. Then if I've done my, you know, digital scouting properly, I'm going to know where the most remote areas of this public area are, uh, the most inaccessible. Those are the priorities to me. Uh, that will, that's what separates, you know, the, the doers from the hopers, you know, the ones that hope to kill a good deer. Um, I will, find access to these remote areas one way or the other however it might be and um get that set up and get it figured out get my some stand sites prepared you know get in there and do the physical scouting and figure out where and how i'm going to hunt and uh, if access is difficult like there's some spots i hunt that i have to have a boat you know i may use a canoe uh whatever I just get that figured out and get all of the logistics you know lined out so that when i come back a few weeks later in early November to do the killing, um, you know, I have every I dotted and every T crossed. That's what my October trip will do for me. It'll get me, you know, a lot of time saved and a lot of heartache uh, saved by physically being there and getting myself prepared so that when I come in November, I can spend my time in, you know, some spots that I've already um, got prepared and, um, I, I don't have to, you know, I plan on doing, I'm a rut hunter. I, I'm not a real pre-season rut, pre-rut hunter. Um, I, I don't pattern deer early season well and hunt them on food sources and different things. I know there's guys that do that, but that's a different line. I'm not there. I'm a, I kill 99% of my deer in the rut and I may not never have even seen the deer, even though it exists. I, I like to hunt what I call kind of rutting corridors where I feel the bucks are going to walk through them at some point during the rut. There may not even be a lot of sign there. I just kind of have learned what these places are and how to, you know, you know, through your digital and foot scouting, you can kind of narrow down. It don't scientist. If you break it down in every square mile there, there's a lot of factors like access by the people. And if you, if you start marking off the areas that are going to not be any good because they're way too easy to get to and way too many people will be in them and then take what's left 
and just figure that the deer will be hiding pretty well in that amount of country, then it shouldn't be, you know, rocket science to figure out how they're going to walk around in that country during the rut and get from one area to the other. And what I try to do is pick some uh, either pinch points or types of funnels that when they're moving from one area to the next, they're going to walk through it. And uh, there isn't often a lot of sign in those spots, and there isn't often a lot of hunting in those spots. It may be a fence row across the pasture, you know, between two creek drainages or something. Everybody hunts the two creek drainages. I'm liable to be sitting out there in a tree in the fence row, you know, in that pasture. But you until you get ready to go out on a limb and kind of do some of that stuff, uh, you really will not know what you're missing, you know, on on big running whitetails. So when you're actually out there doing that on-the-ground scouting, uh-huh. if you're not looking for some of the kind of stereotypical type of deer sign that lots of guys think about, what is it specifically that you're looking for when you are scouting for your style? Well, you know, I've said this for years among my friends, and some of them have come to get a grip on it, and I don't even know what it means myself, but I just say that I hunt by what I call feet. The bottom line is it's not really like it's a secret, you know. What it is is the fact that you get a brain, you know, get a warm body out there, do what you do, learn what you learn, make mistakes, have successes, get confident in what you're doing, and and you'll you'll get good at it. Uh, don't go around all your life searching for the hidden formula and you know getting some expecting some guy like me to be able to uh, tell you just exactly how to do it because. It's more. It's a personal experience. Bow hunting whitetails is something that there is no magical potion for. Uh, just do it, as Nike says. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know that's that brings back when you ask the different approaches like that. I just my mind just flashes to so many different episodes of my hunts over my life in different places. You know, I've I've had plenty of times where. You know, I went to a place and I, I just beat it down during the off season and felt like I had a really strong game plan when I first went in it to it the first time. And I've had instances where those game plans worked out great. I've had instances where I realized that I was backwards. This just, you know, really felt stupid because by the end of the season I'd changed everything and was doing everything different. So once again, there is no perfect rule for it. And other times I've went in and not had a game plan and just – you know, started maybe hunting and working my way in, as you might say, observe, observing and things. I've killed some good bucks out west by doing that. It depends on the habitat. If you're in a, you know, habitat where you can do a lot of observation, uh, especially if you haven't hunted the place, I like that approach. Start in the early, early, early stages of the rut and get that observation done and start working your way in so that by the, you know, the really high movement time in November, you'll already be into the, you know, the core spots. But you know, once again, there ain't no pat answer for it. It's a matter of everything is individual to its own spot. And uh, I, I like to have a game plan when I go somewhere from my digital and all my other scouting. But like this public that I hunt up here in Kansas, um, I went into it the first year. Uh, I, I lost a private place that year. I had everything set up, and it come November the 10th, I went up there to hunt. No landowner kicked me out. Some guys with money had come along and got it, and I... Here it was November the 10th. I had all my stuff set up to hunt, and I'm at ground zero. I have to pull all that, you know, drive to a place, walk in there public, and start over on November, basically the 11th or 12th. Talk about feeling like a lost pup, you know. I mean, I was, I was intimidated. I mean, here it is already time to get the good stuff done, and I'm back at ground zero. 
And I went in there and, you know, I had to make a decision. Am I going to go in here and really, you know, try to learn this place inside out and beat it down and then make plans? Or am I just going to hunt my way in? And it was about 50-50 open, uh, thick habitat where I felt I could observe a lot. So I just started going out into the to the most remote, harder to get to spots and climbing some trees where I could see for a good ways in any direction around and trying to observe, you know, running bucks moving through the habitat and, you know, does or whatever. And I'll be doggone, I called a couple of deer in, you know, from a distance. They were not going to have come by where I was at, but I spotted them and called them in and, you know, got success. They were not huge deer, you know, they were just barely Pope and young caliber deer, but for a first year, a first week on a place, you know, I mean, I felt good to have just gotten in places to where, you know, there would be 10 cars parked in the parking lot at daylight. And if you went into about 80% of that available habitat from there, you were going to have people problems. But there would be 10 or 20% of it that if you really could ferret that out, you could get away from most all them people. Well, guess where most of the deer were going to be? I mean, them deer are going to figure that out pretty quick. Wherever the people are coming and going from, the activity is going to slowly, you know, migrate away from that. And, you know, that's just a public land key right there. Figure out where the people are going to be and spend your time where they're not. Now, that sounds like overly simple, but public land deer are sharp, and there's always nooks and crannies on public places that, for some reason, they're not getting hit as hard as the rest. Those deer figure that out way before you do, and those will be the places you want to be. So, you know, get in there, and and if you want to just go all out, go in there and set up and just sit there until, you know, you know what freezes over, fine. Because, you know, during the peak of the rut, you know, if you get thrown into something like I did in the peak of the rut, you ain't got time to make a big game plan and start trying to refine it down. If you're thrown into something like that and you can't leave home till. November the 10th, and you're going to drive to North, South Dakota or somewhere and, and go into this place, then just, you know, if you've done your, you know, preceding uh, work, you know about where you're going to get, get in there and, and, and either go in and basically get it a bunch and stay all day in a tree. And, you know, we don't, none of us like to rely on luck. We like to figure it out and kill them on our own. But, hey, if you don't have any luck uh, and won't rely on it, which I used to not. I used to say, if I kill one buck, I'm not even going to count it, you know. <laughs> I wanted to, you know, kind of know what I was doing and figure I had a good hand in it. But if I kill them by luck or by skill nowadays, they're still bow-hunted whitetails, and, and, and I'm still appreciative of them. So don't be bashful to get into an area and stay all day and call ever so often, and don't be bashful to sit out on the edges and hunt your way in. Whatever makes you happy um, and the most, hey, there's certain formulas for it that can't be, you know, overlooked. Once you do everything you can do, then nothing more than sheer time in the field is the greatest odds upper. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, from about November the 10th on, I can't tell a person one thing better than more time in the field to have better success. That's the number one odds increasing factor and very few people got the wherewithal to set all day you know uh, so you're, you're an all-day hunter during the rut i try to be i once again it's case specific but I, I try to have places that i can go to and set all day uh there's places that's not good for it and if you're you know halfway 
an outdoorsman, you'll know when it's not really common sense. You're not going to set, you know, right out beside a edge of a fairly accessible farm field probably all day long. You're going to go back in there, off down in the river bottom in the briar thicket down there and set. But uh, out west, it's a different matter. You know, there's lots of places that are excellent for all-day setting because those deer can move freely all day. But, yeah, I, I set all day uh, most of the time, and I've killed, I'm going to say, one out of every three, probably, of my better bucks during a time between 10 in the morning and 2 in the evening. All right. Now, so much of what we've heard today has been all about avoiding other hunters, finding those tough-to-reach spots, finding the places the deer can avoid hunting pressure, looking for sign of other people. But what if you did all that, and still, while you're out there hunting on public land, another guy or girl comes walking up on you or comes tromping through the area you're hoping to hunt, you know, what do you do in that scenario? It's a tough one, and it's something that likely will happen if you hunt public land long enough. So here's Tyler, who's going to help us break down how at least he handles that situation. If it's later in the year, you know, if it's been a tough season, sometimes I've got to remind myself to, you know, try to keep my cool. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, just trying to just lay out where, you know, where he is, you know, where he's hunting or, you know, where they're looking to hunt, whatever it may be. Um, you know, I'm just trying to give each other some respect. Um, a lot of times, I'll give in, honestly. Um, I I look for those spots where nobody else will go, and a lot of times if somebody else shows up, if I have a stand-up, I'll go pull it. You know, I just, I get out of there, and I'll I'll go find another spot. Um, That's the beautiful thing about hunting public land. you got a lot of options. (laughs) So you can always drive to another place and, you know, and start the the whole game over again. Um, So it's... You know, it's it's tough to deal with sometimes, especially, you know, if you've got a spot that you know is, you know, is really good and maybe some guy just, you know, kind of wanders upon it and, you know, didn't do all the homework. He just happened to, to wander that direction that morning with his climber or, or whatever it may be. Uh, it, it can be extremely frustrating, but, you know, it's it's just part of the game and you learn to deal with it and, one of those things, if it does happen and you end up shooting a buck on that trip, it's it's that much more rewarding because it was another, you know, yet another obstacle you had to, you know, had to deal with and, and overcome. So, and finally, here's Tony Peterson with his take on the same issue. Uh, you know, restart, go somewhere else. It happens all the time. I mean, it. I don't ever go on a hunt like this without having somebody come in on me at some point. It seems like or you know, just stupid stuff. Like just as an example, last year in Oklahoma, I had a spot that was about as far away as you could go on any of these public land chunks. And there was a really cool pond with a kind of a wooded draw leading to it. And it was a good spot. I went in there and hung a stand the first day I got there and uh, went to go back in there like three days later. And there was some idiot driving his Jeep around on this closed road, just tearing it up, mudding it up. And you know, I knew it was over because you just, what are you going to do? And stuff like that happens. You know, people will move in on you. Um, it just, it just is what it is. And so that's another reason why you want to have your options. And I'm always thinking about that. So if I've got my heart set on, you know, this river crossing stand, I may go there and there might be two trucks parked there and fresh tracks leading right in there. And so then if you don't get too frustrated and you've got a backup, you can get there and, and not lose your hunting time. 
Um, but it's a constant struggle uh, when you're on public land, especially if you get around the rut or opening week where just more people are out, you're just going to run into that. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's part of the process. But like you said, I run into that on private land all the time on some of my farms. So it's just, it's just hunting. It seems like there's a lot of bow hunters out there now. Yeah. So true. How, do you, what happens in that case? I mean, do you, if, if a hunter comes in, let's say, like you said, and we've, we've had it happen many times myself and Dan too. If, if that happens, do you immediately say, okay, I need to, I need to scrap this spot entirely. Or are you willing to give it one more day and see, maybe this is a one-time thing They came through, they walked through the area once and maybe the next day though, you know, maybe they won't be there and a big buck comes through. Do you give it a little time or do you say, all right, there's been one human invasion. I'm out. I'm moving on to the next place. It, it depends. It depends how it happens. Um, just as an example, last year, when I went out to South Dakota, um, I found a spot that was this walk-in area, had a cut cornfield, it had a, just a phenomenal cedar choke draw that looked like a great bedding area. And so I went in there hoping for a gimme, you know, the field edge buck. And I was sitting there and, you know, hour and a half before dark, two bow hunters came walking through carrying a full body decoy, just banging it on everything. And I had backup spots that I couldn't get to in time, but I had one area that I didn't, I hung a stand, but I didn't convince myself to go sit yet. And when they came walking through, I said, okay, I got two days left. I'm going to go sit that pond stand that I've been avoiding because I knew it was probably not going to be, I I was probably not going to see a lot of deer down there, but it was probably the right setup to just ride it out because I didn't think anybody would go in there. So when those guys came through on me, I said, okay, two days left, I'm going you know, sunrise to sunset on that pond stand just because I thought it's good enough and people won't be there. I went in there and sat and killed a buck. So there you go. This has been my attempt to distill down from a whole bunch of episodes and many, many hours of interviews the most important philosophies and strategies for hunting public land whitetails. But but obviously there's a lot more, and if any of this intrigued you, I would definitely encourage you to listen to the full episodes with each one of these guests if you haven't yet, because there is just a ton that I had to cut out, a lot of interesting additional ideas, stories, anecdotes, examples, lots of good stuff in those full episodes, so be sure to check those out. And I hope that some of you found this helpful. I don't know how often I will do these types of review episodes again in the future, possibly never again, because it took just a crazy amount of time to put this thing together. I mean, uh, hours and hours and hours of listening back to all these old episodes, cutting out the little pieces, and then trying to put them back in an order that made sense altogether and edit it all into one piece. In retrospect, it was not the most time-friendly project, but hopefully it was valuable to some of you to have this all in one cohesive program. So with all that said, enough of this, enough of me. I'm going to wrap this one up. I'm going to thank you all for taking the time today to listen. I want to wish any of you who are going to be future public land owners, I want to wish you all the luck in the world. And for everybody else out there, until next time, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam 
can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.